Let's get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you this morning in the name of Jesus, that we might give you praise and honor and glory, for you alone are deserving of our praise. Father, we uh, give you glory, recognizing who you are with willing hearts this morning. We desire to, to worship you and to honor you. We thank you for your scriptures that you've given to us, the great privilege we have to read them and to study so much that you have said and uh, that you are indicating that you're going to do in the book of Ezekiel. Lord, it encourages our hearts as we understand these things. Pray that this morning, by your spirit, you would illumine our minds, show us the truth, help us to embrace it, and Lord, help us to guide our lives based upon it. Help us to have a perspective of the things going on in this world that is congruent with what the scripture says. Lord, that we would not be surprised or overtaken, but we would be faithfully looking to you. So this morning, we're grateful for this opportunity. We give you praise and glory and honor, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. This is week number 34 in our study in eschatology, and for the last eight weeks, we were in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, looking at the war. So this morning, we push on, and we get to chapter 40. And chapters 40 through 42 in Ezekiel uh, describe a temple, um, more than just a temple, actually all the area surrounding the temple, the gates to get into that area, um, great excruciating detail really given about what this temple looks like and how big it is and those types of things. And there are many who look at um, this temple differently than I do. Um, there are a lot of different views of the temple. Um, a lot of, there's no doubt that Ezekiel did not see a physical temple. Um, the scripture, and we'll see this this morning, clearly says that it was a vision, um, the visions of God. And so he didn't see a physical temple, but he felt like he was seeing a physical temple. So he had this great vision, an angel leads him through the vision, does a lot of measurements. And because of that, there are a lot of people who believe that this temple will never be, that this is just... Um, a way to describe things in the future, such as um, the church, that this temple just represents the church. Um, not exactly the way that I look at it, you know that, um, but a lot of people don't believe that this temple will ever exist. Um, this temple uh, has not existed in the past, we'll see that clearly this morning. Uh, it's too big to have existed, and uh, so they describe, um, and, and we believe this also, that ultimately all the things of God are um, completed in Jesus Christ. Um, we believe in a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven onto a newly created earth, and in that city or in that um, air, place, there is no temple because the scriptures clearly say that 
Um, God and Jesus are our temple, and so there's no need for a temple. There's no need for a moon or for a sun because um, the brightness of God will illumine that place. The glory of God will illumine that place. So we believe in those things, um, but many believe that this temple is describing that, that time, which makes no sense to me, um, because why would you describe a temple if there's not going to be a temple? Um, So, but nevertheless, there are many who take that perspective, and you need to know that. Um, Those tend to be the people who take uh, all of Ezekiel allegorically, um, that don't believe it's a literal um, book, that he's just speaking of things figuratively, especially when you get to chapter 34 and forward. Um, But I don't take that tact. You know that I take the scriptures to being literal, and uh, the things that Ezekiel has been writing about actually will happen and that ultimately there will be this temple. We don't get any details about who builds this temple. So the assumption is it's built by God um, because no one is directed to build this temple. There's no construction of this temple anywhere in the scriptures. It just exists. And I believe it exists in the millennial kingdom. And this is the temple of the millennial kingdom. It is the place of worship during the millennial kingdom, even though Jesus is physically on the earth, ruling over all the earth. Um, Because as we'll see, um, there are still sacrifices, there's still an altar, there's still um, uh, the holy temple. Um, Doesn't say that the holy of holies is divided from the holy place by a curtain. That description is not given, so there are a lot of people who say, well, this temple couldn't exist because the curtain was rent in two, and um, so you couldn't have a holy place and a holy of holies. But you could, because nowhere does this passage say that there is a, t- there is a curtain there, because that would not make sense. So um, there, there are reasons that people believe what they do about this, but I don't think they're substantial. I could be wrong, but that's kind of the way that I parse this. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's the the question. Why the three chapters of describing the details of this temple if it's just a figurative thing? And why give all the measurements that he gives? you know, um, their explanation is he's just describing the glory of God. Um, I, I just don't go there. So I won't take that tag like I've done the, the rest of uh, Ezekiel. I'll take it literally, that this is a literal temple that will be built in the future and that will exist during the millennial reign of God. Um, so um, that's, that's the way that I'll teach it. Um, I understand the other perspectives. I understand they exist. Um, I just don't agree with them. And I will tell you that disagreeing with that, if you do, you're in a small minority. The vast majority of Christianity believes that, that this is allegorical. Um, So we're a small minority and always have been, probably always will be. Um, But that's okay. Okay. So what we'll do is um, 
just begin to read this, but we won't get very far um, this morning because there's some things I want to show you about this temple, especially compared to the other temples in Scripture. So you can see this one is distinctively different than the others. I, I think that's important for us to realize that. So the beginning in chapter 40, um, we just read the first five verses here. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it, to the south, there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I'm going to show you. For you have been brought here in order to show it to you, declare to the house of Israel all that you see. And behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around. And in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. And then he goes on and he measures a lot of things. But I wanted us to look at the rod and begin to understand what's going on here. I mean, in the very first verse, you get the date of when this is in Ezekiel's life. How long has it been since they've been in exile? So he says in the 25th year of their exile. Now the last time frame reference we had in Ezekiel was all the way back in chapter 33. So back in chapter 33, verse 21 was the last time frame reference we had before this one. And you'll see there, this is when the word of Jerusalem falling came. Now in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been taken. So he's in his twelfth year of exile. And now here we are, thirteen years later, in his twenty-fifth year. So the... Ezekiel should be 55 at this time. He should have started his prophecy when he was 30 um, because that's when the um, priests would begin their service, was at 30, so that's what most people think. And so now here he is 25 years later um, beginning to talk about this temple. So, but if you, he's 13 years after our last time frame reference, but he says in the 14th, back over in 40 verse 1, he says it's 14 years after the city was taken. So a lot of people like to point at that and say, see, it doesn't match up. It doesn't make any sense. But he doesn't say the city was taken in the 13th year. He says that, or in the 12th year, he says that word came to him in the 12th year. So it took some time for those refugees to make their trip from Jerusalem 
all the way to Babylon. And so most people believe it's about six months for them to get there. And so by the time they got there, he was in his 12th year when the city actually fell in the 11th year. And you can put dates on these things. I mean, it's pretty well detailed in Scripture, especially in Babylonian um, writings, that the siege of Jerusalem began on January 15th, 588 B.C., and that it didn't, the city did not fall until July 18th, 586 B.C. So it's, it took two and a half years of siege and constantly going against the city for them to actually breach the walls, get into the city, and destroy everything that was there. And so the city, uh, Jerusalem fell in 586, and it takes about six months for these refugees to get to Ezekiel, and now here we are um, 12 years later. And so... Um, we can put pretty good dates on this. This is something like uh, 574 B.C. is when Ezekiel begins to see this temple. Um, you remember that the uh, Israelites were in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. Um, Jeremiah prophesied that. Uh, Daniel later read that um, in Jeremiah's prophecy. And when he did, he began to pray to God. And that's when God sends the angels and Cyrus overtakes Babylon. Cyrus of Persia overtakes Babylon and frees the Jews to go back. And so it all happened in 70 years. It just depends on when you believe that that um, exile began. Did it begin with the first three times Nebuchadnezzar took people from Jerusalem back to Babylon? So did it begin with the first one or with the third one? because they're separated by 10 years. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of different theories and people putting that together. I actually think that you can do a pretty good job when you get over to Daniel, and Daniel talks about these things, and then he talks about the 70 weeks of Daniel and all of that, and you can make it line up just almost exactly with um, when we went from B.C. to um, where we are now. Um, you can, and we'll do that when we get over to Daniel, um, and I'll lay that out. I've done that timeline before, and I think it can make pretty good sense. So we'll try and do that. You can't come up with exactly zero because the calendars were changed and they made some mistakes when we went to the Gregorian calendars. Um, so it doesn't match up with zero like you would want it to, but you can get within a couple of years um, of making it match. Anyway, that's an aside, right? All right, so um, we have this vision taking place a re relatively long time after um, Ezekiel prophesied or told them about Jerusalem. And then he spent some time, we don't know exactly when, talking about the millennial kingdom. And now here he puts a date on when God uh, showed him this vision. And you see clearly in verse 2 that it is a vision. He's not seeing a physical city. They, so this temple did not exist when Ezekiel wrote all of this and spoke it to the people of Israel. So it's clearly a vision of God, um, God showing Ezekiel things that will happen in the future, just like he does with Daniel. Daniel sees a, a huge vision, and it's not real. 
He's seeing things that are going to happen in the future. And God often did that with his prophets. Uh, some of them seeing visions, some not. Um, some just writing things that they didn't really understand fully what they were writing. So it's another 40 to 45 years before the exile is over. So um, there are some who believe that what Ezekiel is doing here is giving instructions to the Israelites of the temple they were supposed to build when they went back to um, Israel. Now, it'll be clear in, as we go through this that they did not build this temple. Um, and matter of fact, they weren't even instructed to build this temple. So we'll, we'll see that here in a few minutes. Now, uh, I believe verse 3 describes an angel who is leading uh, Ezekiel through this vision. I mean, usually when you see a man of bronze, you're not talking, he's in the physical appearance as a man, you know, who walks and talks and that kind of stuff, but he's an angel. Uh, he's a man of bronze, and people aren't made out of bronze. So um, that's what I believe. And he gives Ezekiel a command to pay strict attention. And apparently Ezekiel did, because like I said, he writes in excruciating detail about the gates and the walls and how thick they are and how the uh, buildings are constructed three stories high and you couldn't tie anything to the temple because that would defile the temple. So these buildings had to be tied to another wall. And I mean, it goes into lots of detail. And um, when we get to there, uh, he describes the cherubim in great detail. He describes the carvings on the walls. I mean, just goes on and on and on about this. So we'll, we'll see some of that. We won't spend a lot of time looking at that. But um, Ezekiel is commanded to pay attention, and he did. He did exactly what he was commanded to do. Now, in verse 5 that we read, it says there is a wall around the temple. And that, that word for temple, in almost every one of the translations, says temple, is really house. Um, but it's the house of God, so they considered it a temple. Those translators did. So, um, and this man has a measuring rod, which is, this seems kind of silly to me, is six cubits, and then he defines the cubits as a cubit and a hand breadth. Okay, now, a cubit, I know, it doesn't make sense, right? If it's a cubit, then it's a cubit, but no, it's a cubit and a hand breadth, and there's six of them in this rod. All right, a cubic is um, 18 inches, is what most people believe that a cubit is. And this is all, I think I detailed this for you. A, a cubit is 18 inches, and then a hand breadth. Some think it's three inches, some think it's four inches. Okay, I think it depends on whose hand you're looking at, right? Um, so, um, mine's probably about three inches, but I know there's some... How big is that? I don't know. Three and a half. So if you take three inches, then each one of these cubits is 21 inches long. And um, if you multiply that then by six, you come out with 126 inches, 
which is nothing in a good measurement, in my opinion, because it's so many feet plus inches. But if you take it to be four inches, then each cubit is 22, and you multiply 22 times six, and you get 132, and that's 11 feet exactly. So I like that one better, because then I can talk about 11 feet instead of having to talk about, um, what would that be? That'd be um, uh, 10 feet, six inches if you took three inches. So I don't like that. And so we'll call it four inches and we'll call it 11 feet. So this is a pretty big ride. It's 11 feet. So when he says, he measures the thickness of the wall in verse five, and it's 11 feet. I mean, that's a pretty thick wall. And it's made out of stones. And stones that were not cut there were cut back at the quarry and brought to the temple and set in place so that there would be no hammers and chisels at the temple because that would defile it. So it's quiet there when they're building this thing because they've done all the work back at the quarry. That's what the scripture says. And you go, that's some pretty precise cutting back at the quarry. Um, but anyway, that's what it says happened. Okay, so we have this rod that is 11 feet, and he will use it all throughout this chapter and the next chapter in measuring things. Now, we could look at the details and then um, somewhere in those details find out how big this city is. All right, but you would have to wait all the way to the end of chapter 42 before you would find that. So we're going to go to chapter 42 and see how big this place is. So at the very end of chapter 42, so you would read through all this detail and go, well, how big is this thing? And you won't find it until you get to the end. Because at the very end, down in... Um, Chapter 42, verse 15. Now when he had finished measuring the inner house, he brought me out by way of the gate face toward the east and measured it all around. He measured it on the east side with the measuring reed, 500 reeds by the measuring reed. He measured on the north side, 500 reeds by the measuring reed. On the south side, he measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He turned to the west and measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He measured it on all four sides. It had a wall all around the length of 500 and the width of 500 to divide the holy from the profane. Okay, so this is a wall, a thick wall, 11 feet thick, all the way around this temple. And... He says he uses the measuring reed. Most people, and I being one of those, believe he's talking about the rod that he has in his hand. Now that rod's 11 feet long. And he measures 500 feet, 500 rods on each side. So that's 5,500 feet. Okay, a mile is 5,280 feet. So it's bigger than a mile down each side of this place. It's huge. It's bigger than a square mile. Okay, that is large. So you could begin to go, well, why do you need a, 
a temple wall that is so large around us. Because what we'll see, and I'll show you this, the temple itself, the holy place and the holy of holies, is the same size as it was in Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple. It's no bigger. And it's only um, 60 feet by 60 feet. But you got this wall that's a mile long on each side. Why? Well, you remember how many people are in Israel, right? That it's like the time of the festival. The whole land is populated wall to wall with people. So when you go to do temple worship, you need a big area for all these people to go into the temple. And what we'll see, there are three gates to go into the temple. There's one on the uh, north, there's one on the south, and there's one on the east. There's not one on the west because the temple is on the west side. Um, and we'll see all this laid out. And there's a reason for that um, because going in the east gate, you'd be looking straight at the temple, right? And what we'll see later, nobody goes in through the east gate but one man. Um, and we'll get into all that and try and figure out who that man is and all that stuff because it's, it's a little different. And, um, but the scriptures give us pretty good understanding. Okay, so we have the, this place is gigantic. Okay, it's a square mile. So it would take you 15 to 20 minutes to walk from the north wall to the south wall or from the east wall to the west wall. I mean, so you could get lost in this place. It's big. Um, and there's not much there, actually, until you get, I mean, there are courtroom, courtyards. When you enter in through the gate, you're in the outer courtyard. There'll be another wall that leads to the inner courtyard and then the walls of the temple proper that only the priest could go in. And actually, in the inner court, only the priest could go in because that's where the sacrifices are made and those types of things. Okay, so I want to compare this temple to the other temples that we have in Scripture. Okay, because most people, um, you probably have heard this term, third temple Judaism. That's what, they, that's what this is. This is the third temple. The first temple was the one that Solomon built. The second one was the one that Zerubbabel built which is the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, even though Herod had greatly expanded it and all that. He got nowhere near this big. Um, and then this, you have this temple, which is the third temple. And those are the three temples of Judaism is the way a lot of people like to describe it. Now, um, this temple, if you go to where this temple is going to be, which is on the top of the mount where there's now a mosque. Um, the top of the mountain is not big enough to hold this temple. It's not, it's not a square mile. So you go, the geography is going to have to be changed. And that's some of the things that we saw described in the war, right? That the valleys um, are made low, that the mountains are made low. And so the geography is going to be changed to be big enough to hold this temple. So there does have to be geographical changes. And those um, would happen in the tribulation wars because this is the millennial temple that follows the tribulation wars. And that's described in Revelation in pretty good detail. 
that there is a great earthquake that changes the geography of the world. And so it has to, otherwise this temple is not going to fit where it's supposed to go. Because it goes right where the old temple was. Okay? So let's look at some of the other temples in Scripture. And we'll look at Solomon's. And you could go to a couple of places um, to see this. But I want to show you a couple of things. Um, look in First Chronicles 28. First Chronicles 28. And the descriptions are not exactly the same because we're going to go to First Kings also um, to see the actual temple itself. But in First Chronicles 28, which is right at the very end of, of the life of David, actually. David dies at the end of First Chronicles. Um, and um, I want to show you a couple of things. In verse 2 and 3 of First Chronicles 28, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, so I had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Okay, and we all know that, right? That David wanted to build it, wasn't allowed to build it, but set aside the treasury to build it. All right, and then down in verse 11, and we could read this, 11 through 19, is when David is charge, charging his son and well, let's read some of this. Then David gave to his, his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its building, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the first mercy seat, and the plan that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and, all, and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God, and for the storehouses of the dedicated things." And you go, well, how did David know? Because he gives Solomon the blueprints of what he's supposed to build. And you go, well, how did David know what the temple was supposed to look like? And you get down to verse 19. And this is how David knew. All this, said David, the Lord made me to understand in writings by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So the original temple that was built, just like the original tabernacle that was built, Moses got instruction from God of what it should look like, what the priest garment should look like, what the curtain should look like, what the, um, all the details of what everything should look like. So did David. David here speaks about supernatural revelation that we're not given except for in what he tells Solomon. So David had the great privilege of receiving from God directly what the temple was supposed to look like. And he wrote it all down and gave it to Solomon. And then Solomon built the temple according to what David said. So this is, this is not the instruction of men or what um, David said I had in my mind. This is what God gave him and put into his mind. So this is what God wanted the temple to look like. All right, now turn to 1 Kings, 
and we'll look at some of the details. A little clearer, I believe, in 1 Kings than it is over in Chronicles, because Chronicles also says many of these things. But chapter 6 of 1 Kings, what happens in Chronicles is David dies in chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles, and that ends the book of 1 Chronicles. Then the book of 2 Chronicles begins with Solomon building the temple. And, and, and we're given some of the details here, but I think this here in 1 Kings is a little clearer. So Solomon built according to um, God's plan given to David. And then in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 2. 1 Kings, not 2 Kings. Chapter 6, verse 2. As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, and its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. The porch on, in the front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house, and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Okay, so you have this place that I said feet, but it's 60 cubits by 60 cubits, okay? Inside is divided that what's called the nave, which would just mean temple, is 60, feet, 60 cubits by 40 cubits deep. And then behind that, you have the Holy of Holies, which is 20 cubits deep, 60 cubits wide. Okay, so it's not real big. And then on front of that, you have a porch that is 60 cubits wide, the full width of the building, and 10 cubits deep. So this is not a huge building. I mean, it's not small, but it's not huge. It's um, 60 cubits would be 90 feet, and then by 90 feet. So it's like 8,000 square feet. I mean, which is sizable, but not, not large, especially if you put it inside of a square mile, okay? And we'll see that indeed the temple that was um, in the, the Millennial Temple is the same size, but I want you to see it here first. And so they had very precise measurements given to them. And there are chambers along the sides of the temple, and those are chambers for the priests. You know, there'd be some place where they stored stuff. It'd be a place where they changed clothes because they had to wear different garments when they were ministering in the temple than they wore outside of the temple. And so there are chambers along the side. They're actually three stories tall. And they have spiral staircases that go up to the tops of them. And the walls of those chambers are not attached to the wall of the temple because that would profane the temple. So you have another wall on the outside of the chambers that they're attached to. And they're three stories tall. Um, so that's 60 cubits high. You're now at the top of the um, three chambers, the side chambers also. So there is a lot of detail given here that we don't need to go through. Um, but uh, I want you to get the size of how big this, the original temple was. It's not large. It's fairly small. Um, and the reason is because nobody goes in there. The only people who go in there are the priests. And 
there only once a year does someone go into the Holy of Holies, and that's the high priest. Or as you remember in Matthew, we see them drawing lots for who would go in there, which is why Zacharias went in, because it fell on him that year to be the guy who went in. And you know, you know the stories. They tie a rope around their legs, so if they get struck dead by God, they can drag them out with heaven without having to go in to get them. And you remember Zacharias was in there a long time, and so everybody was wondering what was going on. You know, did God kill him? Because they didn't hear any movement. Um, so anyway, um, this is what God designed. This is God's design, nobody else's. Um, and he gave it directly to Solomon, and Solomon built it exactly as God had said. Now, you go over to uh, Zerubbabel's temple, which is the temple, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar and his troops destroyed the temple completely. So when uh, the Persians came in and allowed the Jews to go back to Israel 70 years after they went into captivity, then when they got there, there's nothing there. The wall, I mean, the walls of the city are still there. The gates aren't. And the temple itself is completely destroyed. All right. So Zerubbabel then had it in his heart to build a temple. And this is all detailed in Ezra. And so you can go to the book of Ezra and you could read the whole thing and you would not find any dimensions except for one place. And um, we'll look at that in Ezra chapter 6, verse 3. And this is... Um, King Darius of the Persians issuing a decree. So in verse 3, in the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits. Okay, nothing says that they actually followed that command. The reason Cyrus gave the command, because there was a lot of political infighting, would be the best way to describe it. They, they went and they built the foundation of the temple. And then the people, the Samaritans, who were adjacent to the land where the Israelites were, had a great uproar. And they went and got um, the king to block the privilege to build. So ultimately, 16 years later, Cyrus makes this decree that the Israelites can build their temple. And that's what got them restarted. It took 21 years to build this temple. But 16 of it, they weren't doing anything because they were politically blocked from being able to get goods and bring what they needed to the city, so uh, ultimately Cyrus cleared that up and said, go build your temple and make it this big. And he's just using the old pattern. I'm sure that uh, Ezra would have told him, this is how big it's supposed to be. Because Ezra would have had the scrolls of First and Second Chronicles, of First and Second Kings, he would have had all those documents. And so he knew how big the pattern said. And it's most likely that when they built the temple, 
They built it right on the same place where the old one was, and they made it the same size. I mean, there'd be no reason to think that they made it any different. Um, so they rebuilt this temple and probably had the chambers and all of that. The, um, the pitiful thing about this temple, you remember the original temple that Solomon built had the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. That's where they put it. And that the fire that was in where they did sacrifices was lit by fire from heaven. So it was supernaturally lit. And then the presence of God came down in a cloud and went into the temple and, and all that. Very glorious. And the temple that Solomon built, you remember, um, made of certain kinds of timbers, but then overlaid with gold. Everything. The walls, the floor, everything overlaid with gold. And so very ornate, very expensive, very glorious, um, a sight to behold. Not so much with the temple that Zerubbabel built. Um, they don't have the wealth that they had before. They don't have the tools. They don't have everything that they had in Solomon's day does not exist. When, when Cyrus said, you can go back to Israel, most of the Israelites stayed in Babylon. Some went back. We know Ezra went back. Nehemiah went back. Zerubbabel went back. Some went back, but most did not go back. They stayed in Babylon, which is why there was such a huge population of Jews in Iraq, because Iraq is where Babylon was, and that's where a lot of the Jews stayed. Not so much today. Most of them have left today, but that's why there were so many in Iraq, because they stayed for generations. Okay, so, but, and if you go through Ezra, no details are given about this temple. They're just simply not there, other than the fact that it was not as glorious as the original temple. Now, when they finished the temple, there were a lot of people rejoicing, but not everybody. So I want to show you that and why they were not rejoicing. So you go down to Ezra chapter, come on, ten, uh, 3. And you get down to verse 10. Ezra 3, verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, <coughs> the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, yet many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before them, their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. 
for the people shouted with a loud shout and the shout sound was heard far away. So you go, well, why are the old priests weeping? Because they had seen the glorious temple. And now they see the shambles of a temple, really. And it's not the same. And so they remember the old and were hoping that the new would be the same, but it's not. And the presence of God never comes into this temple. There's no fire from heaven. There's no Ark of the Covenant because it got lost in the invasion of Jerusalem. Still lost today. Don't have an Ark of the Covenant. I think it exists, but we don't know where. And so these men, the ones who remember, who actually um, did temple worship in the old temple, weep because this one is so pitiful. Yet, it's according to the will of God, but it's not the same as it was before. And I think it's the same size, um, but it's pretty pitiful. And Jerusalem is still destroyed. You know, they, it takes a while. Nehemiah has not yet come back and built the gates around the city of Jerusalem. That comes later. Um, so you, you get the picture of the second temple. Not, and this is the one, by the way, that Nero expanded, that Nero poured money into, that he did make it better than it was when Zerubbabel built it. Zerubbabel built it but not as like the old one. And, um, you know, you, with this, when, when Solomon built the original temple, he did it according to the pattern of God, and then he built his house adjacent to it, and his house is much larger than the temple, and just as ornate. Kind of ridiculous, but nevertheless, it's true. At least this was made out of wood, not overladen with gold. But it's bigger, a lot bigger. Okay, so we, that's two of the temples. So we, we've seen the three temples, right? We've seen the one that Ezekiel gives us. We've seen the one that Solomon built. And we've seen the one that Zerubbabel built. I didn't show you the details of the one that um, is in the Millennial Kingdom, of how big the... Um, The Holy of Holies is. I don't think I have that reference this morning. I'll show it to you. But it's the same size. It's 60 cubits by 60 cubits. And you have the nave, which is 60 cubits by 40 cubits. And then you have the Holy of Holies, and that's what they call it. 60 feet by 20 cubits. But it doesn't say anything about a curtain being across it and dividing the two. So is it there? Is it not there? You can speculate. Um, they do go in there to do sacrifices, just like they did in the old day. They still have an altar out front on the porch um, to kill the sacrifices. Um, so all of that we'll see in detail goes on just like it did in Old Testament times. Question is why, right? Why would that have to take place? And, of course, this is one of the arguments why this temple doesn't really exist. Because why would you need sacrifices when Jesus was the final sacrifice? We'll talk about that.
of why you would need those. So, because it does give all those details, and we're going to look at some of them as we go through these three chapters. So, um, don't worry, we're not going to spend 20 weeks in these three chapters. I want to show you a few things. We'll hit some high points. And the good thing is that once he describes the east gate, the north and the south gates are exactly the same. So you only have to really look at the details one time and then you get, get the picture. And why is there not a gate on the west? So those, kind of th those, those are questions that we need to deal with and answer. And we'll do that. Okay? So the, the thing I really wanted you to realize is that the temple proper is the same size all three temples. But the temple area of this final millennial temple is huge. It's a square mile. And so this temple has not yet been built. We've never had a temple that was even close to this. And so if it is going to be built, it's yet future. So, and I believe it is going to be built and it's going to be built in the millennial kingdom. And um, I'm not sure who's going to build it, but it's going to exist. Right. And the other thing that you noted is in your notes, but the Hebrew word here is house, but it has much more of an overtone of an abode of a family. Right. And I go right to the Lord's teaching in the upper room discourse that says, I go to prepare a house. Yeah. We turn it into mansions. But it, it's, a, it's a large dwelling place. Right. For you. Right. And to me, it's just fascinating as you lead us down this passage and what this temple is. Yeah, and the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, they give, he gives dimensions, and it's a cube, and it's where the mansions are, or the houses are, the dwelling places are, and it is dwarfs what we have here. I can't remember exactly. I want to say it's 5,000 miles by 5,000 miles by 5,000 miles. It, it's big. What? 1,500 miles. It what we here, Oh, yeah. It makes this look small. So, because there's a lot of people there. Not as many as, we, as some people think, but there's still a lot of people there. Okay. We're done. Thanks for your time. <laughs>